Attention all mortals, veterans and civilians alike. It's time to buckle up and get ready for a wild ride because you just tuned in to the Swandingo Files. Your host, Steven Swanson, is here to help you navigate the crazy world of transitioning from military life to civilian life. And let me tell you, it's a bumpy road, but with a little bit of humor and a lot of determination, we can make it through together. And welcome back to the Swandingo File. Today I have Josh Costner with me, a fellow veteran. I uh, also works with FEMA and natural and man-made disasters now. He's going to tell us how he got into that one. And apparently an FF, FAA certified UAV pilot. He's doing all sorts of crazy stuff. So let's welcome Josh to the show. How's it going? And it's going fantastic. I cannot complain one bit. I bet not. You got a lot of interest, interesting titles. So... <laughs> Many, many years of hard work to get there. Oh, I bet. So uh, today I just want to kind of go over why you joined, uh, what you did a little bit in, and then how you got into everything you got into afterwards through while you're transitioning out. So if you want to begin, uh, just why did you join the military? Well, it was uh, it's family tradition. Um, our family, as far you know, we came to this country, I believe, Adam Costner came to the country, I think, in 1775, if I recall correctly. And then we have, you know, him and his sons joined the Revolutionary War at the time, uh, shortly after. And so ever since then, pretty much every single generation in the Costner line has served either in military or government. So it's just something we just do. So... You're one of the few people I know of that can actually trace their lineage to like a date. Like I have no idea. I have no idea. So I just we know can, what. We can trace our family line back to the mid 1400s in Germany. How the heck? Well, you guys, you guys literally like kept the, uh, like every generation was passed down or something or how do yep. you guys? Wow. Yeah, we, we've been very, very, very strategic in tracking the family lineage and, uh, you go all the way back to the 14, 15, 1600s. Uh, the Costners were actually the treasure keepers of the kings of Germany. Pretty wild stuff. That's oh, that is pretty cool. I I, I wish I knew half of my family, like anything past my great grandparents. I don't I have no clue after that. So, uh, so uh, what branch did you join, and what was your job? Well, I joined the army. <laughs> I was actually going to join the air force, but they were out to lunch. So I thought, well, let me walk across the hall here and see what the army has to offer. And uh, ever since then, I thought, man, I kind of wish I'd have waited for the Air Force to come back and watch. But uh joined the uh, Army, and they gave me a wide choice of selection of stuff to do because I I scored decent on the ASVAB. And they said, well, you know, here's a, here's a broad range. Take your pick. And I said, well, I don't want any of that because it was all, I don't know, tech and counterintelligence. And I said, you know what? I the kid in me wants to drive stuff that will smash through buildings. And they were like, really? And I said, yeah. And so I ended up <laughs> as a heavy equipment operator. And uh, actually, I when when it got to the point of going to Iraq, the primary duty was any time the armored cab, like the, you know, the Abrams, want to create a defensive line, uh, my job was to grab a D7G cat dozer and with uh, helicopter overwatch, drop in and very swiftly 
dig a multi-tier depolade so that the Abrams could drop down into it, be completely hidden, or pop up with just the turret above the ground. And so that was basically my primary duty, although as swift as everything moved, I never really got a chance to do that. Well, that's pretty cool. Well, at least you got the train on how to do that kind of stuff because I joined. I, I did pretty decent on the ASVAB, and they gave me a whole list of just MOSs by number, and it's like, I don't even know what this is. And they showed me the scout, they showed me the scout video and it's nothing like that. I'll tell you that right now. So <laughs> I picked it, never got a dune buggy or a dirt bike, but. Yep. Now I, so. I will say this, getting over there, uh, I got I kind of, because I loved cross training and I had a, a lot of different MOS cross trainings, I kind of got piecemealed out to other groups to, to help this, that and the other. And at one point I did get to room and board with British Special Forces, and those guys are crazy. And I was a little jealous of the fact that they had personal dirt bikes, and uh, I was like, hey, where can I get one of these? <laughs> I want one. Well, at least, uh, so how many, okay, so you said you did a lot of cross-training. How much cross, all right, how many different things did you cross-train? You don't have to, like, list every single one, but just how many different uh, ones did you do? Uh, I, I got in, I got heavily into the nuclear, chemical, and biological, uh, cleanup and recovery stuff. Uh, that really caught my attention. And so that is kind of what spurred me into steering towards emergency management when I got out of the military. And, and plus, right after I got out was when Hurricane Katrina happened. So. Okay. So. All of, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I, I was going to say that the prior training with, you know, uh, hazmat and chemical stuff and then seeing what happened with Hurricane Katrina, I was like, man, you know, we really need a better system, a way to lower the impact of disasters, uh, because this is horrible. And so over the next several years, I did a whole lot of research and, but it, it and, and that was 2004, 2005. And it wasn't until 2010 that I actually started going to college. But during those years, I was looking into, you know, the critical infrastructure of our country and how emergency management was set up. And I thought, man, we have a real crappy, <laughs> uh, you know, setup as far as protecting our critical infrastructure from disasters. So I said, you know what? There's no one out here who proclaims to be a professional in this other than FEMA. And FEMA's not doing jack squat. So around 2010, 2011, I said, you know what? I'm taking it upon myself to dedicate my life to the study of disaster mitigation, which mitigation is just a fancy word for lowering the impact of disasters. And so I, about 2013, 2014, I said, you know what, I'm just going to go ahead and push through and become the leading expert in the field. And so that's been my journey ever since. Wow. Uh, so how many years did you end up doing in the military? Uh, I was only in from 2001 to 2004. So it did, uh, nearly a three year stint. Of course, I got injured in Iraq and then flown back to Fort Hood, Texas and spent several months in physical rehab, uh, regarding my right arm and shoulder. And they said, well, it's just, it's jacked up and you can't do a combat role anymore. So we're going to give you a desk job. And I was, uh, I was young and dumb and I said, I don't want to stink a desk job. And they said, well, you can do a desk job where we can med board you out. And I was like, sayonara. Of course, I look back now, and I'm like, man, that, that retirement would have been nice. <laughs> uh, retirement would have been nice, but how many times would you uh, – how much more stuff would you have been involved in? Yeah, there's no telling. 
Oh, I know. So I did 14 and a half years for the med boarded me out uh, as an E7. And Jesus, I did every two to three years I was moving and it got harder with kids and yeah. it's just the deployments. And, you know, it's just, I mean, don't get me wrong. I have no regrets. I had fun, but there's a lot of stuff that is like, man, I wish I would have done it on a different route. I wish I would have done mm-hmm. that. I did the recruiting. I did some college, blah, blah, blah. But so after, uh, when you transitioned out, what'd you do immediately after? Or what did you do to prepare yourself to transition out, I should say, first? Honestly, I had no idea what to do at the time. Um, I came out of the Army expecting, with these expectations, that, hey, you know, I have served my country. I have now had a lot of experience uh, being directly responsible with, you know, massive amounts of military hardware, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars a year in my direct responsibility. Uh, at times, you know, I had, there was a couple of times I'm sure I had probably upwards of $750,000 worth of gear that I was directly responsible for. And you come out thinking that people are going to respect that and offer you a good job role because of that. And they don't. Every single company I went to for those first three months out of the army literally laughed at me. And they said, we don't care. You're starting at the bottom rung. And I was I got furious. I was pissed. I was like, nobody cares. And I, I really did allow it to affect me in a wrong way. So for the next year, I basically just lived on my severance pay and sat in the basement and didn't do, didn't do squat. I drank myself drunk every single day and <laughs> just, I got really angry. And, uh, finally I was like, okay, this is no way to live life. I've got to, I've got to man up and, and figure out how to move forward. Yeah, that's, uh, I don't remember what it was called back then, but I know some of my battle buddies that got out right after OIF1, um, they went, whatever they called it back then, I can't remember what it was called, and they said the same thing you did. They got out, I mean, granted, we were scouts, and there's really nothing on the outside of a police officer and truck driver, which I was for a little bit, actually. Um, I mean, they said the same thing. Like we, The expectations given to us from the military, and it's not just the Army, it's all four branches. Right. You're going to get out with this awesome job or you're going to have so many more doors open when that's not true at all. Because if one thing people, especially the lower tier of E5s and below, need to realize is if you didn't do anything while you were in, like college or any instructor jobs or anything like that, you pretty much have nothing on the outside. Right. Exactly. You might as well spend those first three, four years you're in the military and just get as much college as you can to prepare yourself for the outside. Absolutely. Because the military is not going to care for care about you when you're done. And that's true. Hard reality, you're just a number. Yeah. That, well that you know, that is that is the cold harsh truth. You know, you are just a number. Realize that. And you know what I what I had to do was just embrace the fact that nobody's coming to save me. Nobody's coming to hand me anything. And all of what I did in the military, there are people who are grateful for that, but the system as a whole could not possibly care less. So it, it really is, I mean, it, it's, it's really up to us to be able to, you know, move forward, grab a hold of some goals. And, and if you're active duty and you're watching this right now, ask for training, cross train, get as much college as you can under your belt before you get out, because I'm telling you, that and and networking. 
build a strong network, even if it's just five or ten guys who are well-connected, develop those friendships, build the respect, build the camaraderie. Because when you get out, I'm here to tell you one thing right now that I learned, camaraderie is the only thing that's going to still be in place with your fellow military family. And you're going to have to continually push to make that alive and keep it alive. But that is going to be your lifeline. Uh, I didn't realize that when I came out. And so I had to go back and rebuild connections over time. Uh, but then that's one reason why once a month I host Combat Coffee. It is a for by veterans for veterans uh, encouragement breakfast once a month. We get together, we have coffee, we have breakfast. We just talk about the challenges we're facing. We help each other out. If someone's in need of something, hey, I know two or three people in that field that might be able to help you, might be able to use you and, you know, help you get ahead as well. So it's really it's all about uh, accountability, integrity and building each other up to stay active, stay on mission, which is just doing life. And uh, it because really, I think where so many veterans fall into the depression trap is that we're so used to having a mission while we're in active duty. We get out and all of a sudden we're like, what do I do? I mean, talk about idle hands, you know. So the the main thing is to keep that military routine. Make it routine every single day and work on your goals. Specify the mission you want to achieve. What do you want to achieve in life? Well, write it down and then reverse engineer the steps it'll take to achieve that mission. And I can't say enough about that. I still, to this day, my alarm goes off at 4.30 every morning. I roll out of bed and I start my day and I have time chunks for every part of my day. And at 10 o'clock at night, I'm laying back down in bed to get it all over again. Uh, I like I like how you said that. That was actually perfect uh, how you just said that. And I really hope people grasp that part of what you just said, because when you get out, it is it is a culture shock, especially. I mean, I know for even some senior leaders that it's just like which you would think they'd be better off on the outside. But they're actually more uh, what do you call it? Um what do you call it, indoctrinated with the military life, they actually struggle a little bit more. Mm -hmm. And I know when I got out, it's like, man, I don't have to go run today, no PT today. What do I do with myself? I'm like, I mean, I had kids and all, but this is just weird. I mean, what do I wear every day now? So it's just, it's (laughs) you get so, like, like, just indoctrinated with the lifestyle that just even not have to put on a uniform anymore is kind of like a culture shock. And it's just, it's so crazy. But um, I would highly advise guys that are coming out of active duty. What are the small things you do every single morning that are routine? Keep those going. Do not let those die because it's those little small rituals every single morning that will keep you moving forward. And so long as you can shift your mission Okay, my mission was one thing in the military. Now that I am civilian, I'm picking a new mission, but I'm keeping the routine because I'm telling you the routine and the self-discipline will help keep you from falling into that depression. And that and you're still going to have to fight it from time to time. I mean, it's just who we are. It's what we did. You know, you're going to have, you know, PTSD and all this other stuff that you deal with. But. Again, camaraderie, the support system you build around yourself, and the routines are going to help greatly. And coffee helps a lot, too. So. Oh, God, yes. <laughs> so so it took you, what would you say, about a year to really start getting getting going after you got out? 
Yeah, probably, a, honestly, almost two years. But for a solid year, I just sat there and didn't do anything. Like, I literally sat in the basement, played Xbox, and got drunk every day. And What, uh, what was the – uh what finally flipped a switch for you? Like, what – I mean, there had been something I'd be like, I can't do this. I mean, what was it that got that light switch back on? Well, I, I knew that, you know, I lived through things in combat that no human should live through. So I knew I had a purpose. And I said, okay, I've got to get off of my pity party and I've got to, you know, <laughs> grab myself by the balls and really get things under control here. Uh, because as, you know, the more you drink and the, you don't do PT and you're starting to get out of shape. And I said, okay, okay, this is, this is getting ridiculous and life is starting to pour chaos on me. And that's one thing that we're really good in the military about doing is taking chaos and creating order from it. So that's what I did. I started, okay, I got to get a plan together. Uh, I actually started going to counseling at the VA center for PTSD. Uh, I had to rotate through several counselors to find one that I <laughs> could mesh with because the, you, unfortunately the VA hires anyone who's a counselor and they don't really look at what's your background? What are your perspectives? Are you a, you know, are you a constitutionalist? Are you a capitalist? Are you, and I hate to get that way, but you know, if you're going to be counseling with veterans, you better be damn patriotic in your background and your experience. Otherwise, you're going to go get a whole lot of this right in your face and told exactly where to put it. And, and you know, I, I had to go through that process as well. But I finally found a counselor who grew up in a military family. His dad was a full bird colonel. And so he knew what the military life was like for the family. And we meshed really well. And for 10 solid years on a monthly basis, I did counseling with him. And it worked wonders. Wow. It's funny that you say that because uh, I went through the counseling a lot through the VA and everything, and it just seemed like there were some that just you just couldn't really open up to because they just like I'm only here to collect the paycheck, right? And then I finally found one, and she wasn't even an American; she's actually from Pakistan. But you know, you know, their lifestyle in Pakistan versus ours here in America is a lot more cushy. So you, you know, her dad, you know, got him out of there and got him over here. Um, First, they went to Britain, then they finally came to the United States. And so she's seen, you know, a little bit. So she understood the, right. over there what we were going through some. And she was actually the best one I ever had. And we just kind of lost touch, though, because too much stuff happened. But um, so how what was the first thing you decided to uh, do? Like, because I know you're a speaker, writer, you know, the disaster, man-made and um, what do you call it? mitigation and you're also a UAV pilot. So that's quite a bit of hats right there. Which one did you get into first? Uh, first I got into the emergency management. Uh, I was going to Arkansas State University and, uh, about 2011 is when they really pioneered the actual, they were one of the first schools to offer the bachelor's, master's, and doctorate program, uh, for emergency management. So I said, Hey, that's the path for me. So I jumped into it full bore. And just as within about two years, I realized mitigation was the specific focus that I wanted to focus on to be. That's my niche field. And at the time, FEMA looked at mitigation as a post-disaster thing. You know, wait till the disaster happens, then clean up and then try to figure out how can we not let this happen again. And I said, well, that's fast backwards. We need to be looking at mitigation as the number one first thing. And if we can get that mindset 
of doing everything with mitigation from the, as the perspective that we approach life, how can we how can we lower the impact of disasters? Because I mean, there's always the fires, floods, earthquakes, and tornadoes, hurricanes. We're going to have all five of those here in the United States every single year. It's happening. And every single year, nobody really prepares for it. And every single year, we have billions in losses, billions with a B, billions in losses every single year due to natural disasters. And so I thought, God, man, this is a terrible. Who sold us on this plan? So I started studying mitigation, the history of it, what it is today, what the potential future could be. If we employed it in our construction, the way we build homes, offices, neighborhoods, communities, industrial zones, and I got to looking at the technology we currently have that would be mind-bogglingly amazing if we would just implement it in the construction of how we build things. And we have the technology, and it's relatively affordable. It's just not being used. Uh, kind of funny you mentioned that because here in Texas, I live in North Texas, and I think all new houses here have tornado shelters and I'm built in. That's now, we good. Haven't had, we haven't had a tornado since, so I think it was 1974 in Wichita Falls, and they had an F5, I think. But, I mean, you just never know. I mean, we've had some right. strong area, but that was kind of different. It's like, oh, maybe we See, can up in this area, us. up until about 1975, every house had a storm shelter built with it. And then late 70s, early 80s, they got away from it, and no one puts them in their houses up here anymore. But we get hammered with tornadoes incessantly, and it just doesn't make sense to me. It's To me, it's the, it's the warrior in the garden mindset. Better to be you know, a warrior in a garden than a gardener in a war. Better to have it, not need it, than need it, not have it. All right. Uh, okay, so you do that. So at what point did you have time to become an FAA certified UAV pilot? Uh, that would have been <laughs> right after I wrapped up college and uh, I was doing a whole lot of training uh, in FEMA to get a lot of FEMA certifications. That would have been 2019. So now 2016, I could already see the trend. And I contacted a buddy of mine who was a, also a business partner, and I said, we need to look at getting into this field because this is the future. And he was like, I don't know. I said, trust me, the day's coming. And then in 2019, uh, he came back around. He said, you're right. We got we to gotta get on this now. I said, okay, let's do it. So did several months of studying uh, because uh, at that time you had to know, and I think you still do, but you really had to know everything an actual fixed wing pilot has to know. And so, and it's, they treat a drone the same as they treat a plane. Once you pass the FAA certification, get your license, your pilot's license, uh, your drone is assigned an N number, just like an airplane. And so now it's in the registry as an aircraft. And when you're flying that thing, you have to you have to abide by the same rules as everybody else in the air because the FAA is very 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 strict about airspace and for good reason. You get a three pound drone up in the air impacting with a Cessna at you know 150 miles an hour. All of a sudden, that three pound drone becomes an 80 pound object punching a hole through the plane. So there's there's very strict rules, and if you go outside those rules, you can get fined and banned from ever flying again. There was a guy locally who was flying just around his car lot, 
getting, you know, some snapshots of the car lot so he could use them in a commercial. The FAA showed up not long after and he got fined $50,000 and banned from ever flying again. Whoa, $50,000 for just that little drone. And probably what, I mean, how many feet would that have been off the ground? It was probably 150 feet off the ground. That's not But, but he was also advertising that, hey, look what I can do with the drone now. And he was in FAA regulated airspace. So they were like, mm, yeah, not happening because you're close to international airports. It was not that far from the Little Rock airport. So had he decided to push that farther up, I mean, because a drone's flight ceiling is, you know, it can go thousands of feet up. Uh, but you, you can't break the 400 foot barrier except under very extenuating circumstances. So there are real dangers there for sure. Wow, I had no idea that. Like, I knew at certain levels, but I didn't know that you had to get a, get an end number assigned. I mean, is there like so the ones you buy in the store, those are fine. But at what limit do you have to? Or what? So I guess is there like a UAV like size that you have to register? Or I mean, how does that work? I mean, because I mean, you can yeah, there. I mean, the there are button. there are definitely sizes coming. You can get a pretty heavy bird. You know, like the birds that we typically are working with, you know, they're anywhere from 5,000 to 30,000 a bird. And then you start throwing sensors on there. And next thing you know, you've got a, you've got a drone that's uh, carrying $150,000 worth of gear on it. Uh, but it really comes down to if you are going to make one penny off of the, what you're doing with your drone, you have to be certified, period, end of story. Period. I did not know that. I'm glad uh, glad you t- told me that because I, oh, yeah. I mean, it, it is definitely a field that people should take a little bit more of an interest in, honestly, because it's exploding big time. Oh yeah. Oh. Yeah. The the anticipated need for drone pilots, the FAA estimated within the next probably six seven years, we'll need about three hundred and fifty thousand drone pilots. And right now, I think there's only about eighty five thousand worldwide. And that 350,000, I believe that number was just for the United States. So there's going to be a lot of opportunities in that field. Awesome. So definitely, uh, so where do you even start on that field? Like, is it through an actual college or, I mean, how, or can you do it on your own or? You can do it on your own. There are, you know, several different schools that offer training. So, I mean, but I mean, you can get the training materials from the FAA. And then to get the license, if I remember correctly, it's close to $200 to take the test. Uh, if you fail it, yeah, you got to go back and pay that again. Uh, but, you know, uh, but yeah, there's training materials out there. There are certain organizations and you can just Google FAA 107, you know, training materials. Typically the, the top 10 that pop up are going to have some pretty good courses uh, to take. They're not cheap by any means, but they really do walk you through everything to expect on the test because i mean you're going to be tested on everything that a fixed wing pilot would be tested on such pretty cool that that would be something that you know if you start what is it like six months unless you're retiring as a year or something you can start looking that one year could you finish it in a year or I would, oh yeah. yeah yeah you could probably finish it and honestly you could probably go through the training and take your test within probably four or five months okay. really know your material uh you just got to study hard every day and uh know the material going into the test. Uh, and then, you know, it took took me about, I think, an hour and a half to take the test. And then uh, rock and roll from there. 
Awesome. Because that would definitely be something that with that many job openings that uh, transition, getting someone getting ready to transition out would definitely actually look at, look at getting into. So, yeah. But, now, there are a lot of pilots out there already mm-hmm. who are pilots. And if you have your pilot's license, it's nothing to go take the 107. You'll, you'll pass it with flying colors. Now, watch out because there are a lot of companies that are coming and saying you have to have a bachelor's degree to fly. BS, total BS. You do not have, a, have to have a bachelor's degree to fly. You don't have to have any degree to fly, period. If you're a skilled pilot already, you will be fine. Trust me. Just go well, take I'm, the 107. <laughs> I'm, not a, I'm not a skilled pilot, so by no imagination. So <laughs> I actually might look into that, though, in all honesty. So I appreciate you coming on today, Josh. Um, but this is going to wrap up this episode of the Swandingo Files with Josh Costner, FEMA, UAV pilot, horizontal construction engineer. I mean, he's had a lot of hats, Ben. Which one's your favorite hat? Oh, gosh. Uh, probably the critical infrastructure mitigation consulting. That's probably my all-time favorite. I love doing well, that. Well, please save us billions of dollars. So, <laughs> <laughs> Doing the best I can. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, folks, that's all we have for today's episode of the Swandingo Files. I hope you've enjoyed this journey with your host, Stephen Swanson, as much as he enjoys recording it. Remember, transitioning from military life to civilian life is tough. But with a little bit of grit, a dash of humor, and a lot of determination, you can overcome any obstacle. So until next time, keep on trucking, and keep Swandingoing.